You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 26, Imaginary People. In a previous episode, Jim talked with a man who heard voices in his head. Uh, This was quite a popular episode and we had a lot of folks comment on it. And this kind of hallucination is just one kind of imaginary person. Recently, there's been some zipping around the internet about how some people have an internal monologue and some people don't, which is apparently blowing everyone's minds. Today, we're going to get into the psychology of thinking about people that don't exist. Jim, you've been thinking a lot about this, haven't you? Yes. So I I wrote a book on the imagination. And as I was researching, I found that imagining people happens a whole lot. We imagine it when we're planning things, when we're creating fictional stories, when we're engaging in fantasy or dreaming. Uh, And then there are also hallucinations and imaginary friends. So um, and then I went to this really cool conference in uh, Durham, England. And it was get this. It was three days of talking about the psychology of imaginary people. <laughs> it was wow. like a whole conference on it. It was wonderful. It was called Personification Across Disciplines. And were there folks from, um, like, what kinds of disciplines were present there? There were, like, literary people there. There were psychologists, people who study imaginary friends, lots of um, huh. uh, vo- heard voices. So that the interview we did about the guy who heard voices in his head, uh, Gregory Shanklin, he, that was at that oh. conference and he was there. Okay, so let's start by qualifying what exactly do we mean by imaginary people? So imaginary people are people that you uh, simulate in your head. So anytime you're thinking about somebody or what they might do or whatever uh, in your head, that is an imaginary person as opposed to like a flesh and blood person right in front of you that you might be thinking about. So would it count if I was imagining somebody I know in my head? Does that count or is it? Yes, so if you're imagining somebody you know, you're imagining your model of them. Right. So if I were to ask uh, you if your husband would like to go out for Thai food, you would use your knowledge of him to simulate a version of him in your mind and try to come up with an answer. But, of course, you might be wrong about something. Right. So we get things wrong about people we know all the time, suggesting that, yes, like that even though there might be a corresponding real person in the world, the version in your head is imaginary in the sense that it is from your memories. I mean, likewise, you know, if you imagine Abraham Lincoln. You know, is he a real person? Well, he was, but he doesn't exist now. But you could imagine him, what he would say. Or I so, understand. So, so when you're thinking about people in general, in uh, as opposed to just sort of perceiving them right in front of you, like if I look at your facial expression and I say, "Oh, Kim looks confident and happy," you know, that's me just analyzing what you look like. It's not simulating you. But if I were to imagine, like, "Oh, what would Kim do if I offered her a cup of coffee?" Then I have to rely on what yeah. I know about you. And I can simulate it. And that would, then, then you'd be the imaginary person we'd be talking about. And I'm sure there is a, like I want to touch on this later, but there's a variation in how, how well people are able to vividly imagine people. Right? There's, there's, well, like, the, there's yeah. vividness of imagery, right? So if you're picturing somebody, uh, yes, that varies in enormously whether, like how well you can picture them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm today, you know, what I'm mostly talking about is sort of a, uh, what you think they would do and what you think their mind is like, like what are their preferences or and that kind of stuff. So let's talk about like, I always think I, when we dream, you know, um, I've had this phenomenon where there there are people that, I, that I'm obviously dreaming about that exist in real life. And then I have um, people in my dreams that I don't think I've ever met. Right. So right. 
What What is that? What's happening there? Yeah, you know, I get asked all the time because there's some uh, like pop psychology thing going around. This is that every every person in your dream is somebody you've seen before, and there's no evidence of that. But um, it's it's a it, it's a tempting idea because it's kind of unfalsifiable because you can't remember all the people you've seen. So I was like, oh, it could be. <laughs> but well, there's I've, no reason to think that it's true. I've often the way I explain it is, and I don't know if this is true or not, is that um, it's like a um, somebody to do with our attention. So we might be sitting in the bus and not necessarily attending to every single face on the bus, right. but our eyes are still seeing them. And perhaps in dreams, it's either a reconstruction of these non-attended faces or perhaps a composite of facial features of individuals we've encountered across. Well, in some sense, that's got to be true, because where else would you get the right, raw true. material yeah. for imagination? Fair. I mean, fair, your imagination fair. is made up of memories recombined. So, I mean, in, in that sense, of course, yes, if you've never seen a face before, you're not going to be able to imagine one. Um, uh, it's just that you probably don't imagine specific individuals. But it's also true that it's actually quite hard to vividly imagine the details of a face. Yeah. Um, and I'm, like I said, I'm sure there's people that are better at it. Artists, for example, must be very good at no. having... No? No, no. In fact, um, Chuck Close, who's a very famous artist, he, he painted these giant pictures of people's faces, sometimes like slightly pixelated. He was prosopagnosic, which means what? he was face blind, which means that he like... Uh, so face blind people... Uh, they can sort of see faces, but they can't tell them apart very well. So uh, it's kind of like if you got a tree in your front yard and you were walking around Europe and somebody put an exact replica of your front yard tree, you wouldn't be like, oh, my God, that's a tree from my front yard. You would never notice that. So mm -hmm. to prosopagnosics, every face is, is sort of like trees. They all just sort of look like generic faces. So, yeah, there are artists who have no mental imagery. There are wow. artists who, ha um, who have very vivid mental imagery. And, um, yeah, so there's a lot of variety well, there. Well, that's, that's totally thrown my hypothesis <laughs> out into the gutter. <laughs> but so I do know, um, like, so for, I'm, I have a very vivid um, mental space. I don't know how best to describe this, but I, I'm always planning. So, for example, when I think about mm -hmm. my day uh, and I'm planning my day, I think about you know, my first meeting in the morning and then what, what I'm going to be doing in that meeting, where it's going to be. Uh, I think about where, when I'm going to need to have lunch. Where am I going to be eating lunch? So can you tell us, like, is, like, when you're planning, are you actually thinking about real people? Well, you're thinking about real people, but what's in your mind are imaginary oh. people, of course, right? So you've got... Um, you know, your models of what people would do. So, you know, you might think like, oh, uh, maybe I should call this person at that time. But you might think, oh, are they in bed or are they having, are they busy? Is that their time with their kids or something like that? And that would be on, based on your knowledge and guesses about what they would be, right? And we fill in stuff we don't know. So if you know somebody is from a particular culture or that they like rock music or something, you might make assumptions about other things that you don't know about, right? Mm. So, so tell like me, your your mental model of people is partially based on observations and partly inferences um, that you draw from those observations. And you will imagine hypothetical people, right? And sometimes you just don't know. Or if you know somebody very little, and you, somebody asks you, "Do they speak French?" You might have no idea. And I'm sure there's a whole branch of research looking into how we might have cognitive biases against the ima imagined people in certain. Um, yeah. jobs or, you know, like when we imagine a, a border agent, we might imagine them to be male, more likely, right? Of course, yeah. 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 Hmm. So what do you find so interesting about imaginary people? Well, um, one thing that didn't get, hasn't gotten a whole ton of 
attention in the scientific literature that I'm very interested in is this thing about imagined people that's very mysterious is that sometimes they f they feel like we're in complete control of what they do, meaning like when we imagine a situation like in a fantasy, for example, we can usually just control what the other imaginary characters do. But sometimes they feel like they are not in your control. They feel like they are acting on their own as though you're watching a movie or something like that. So uh, it's kind of an interesting problem, like, you know, when do they feel in control and when do they feel out of control? And I guess this is, that could be like in dream states. Right. So when you're dreaming, people, uh, the dream characters you meet, the, sorry, so a dream character is a kind of imagined person. The dream characters you meet, they're obviously controlled by your mind. I mean, where else would they what else would cause them to be controlled? But they don't act like they're under your conscious control. And they do things you don't like. Um, uh, so they're not autonomous, but they feel like it. Okay, So they have um, – uh, it's an illusion of, of autonomy, uh, illusion of that like, they are controlling themselves. Um, now, something that's kind of funny is I keep like – notes of questions for experts, right? So when I think of a question in physics, like, oh, is the center of mass the same thing as the center of gravity? Or whatever, I'll write it down. <laughs> what are you only, only you, Jim. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I talk to a physicist, I'm like, oh, and I, and I whip out my like notes for all the questions I have, and I ask them, right? So I have them for different disciplines and this kind of like thing. Like you did with me this morning. I did. I, I was asking Kim all about whether fish can feel pain. Mm. It's another episode. Okay, anyway. Um, but so what happens is I'll meet experts in my dreams and I'll ask them these questions and they're really evasive. They're like, oh, well, you know, and I get so frustrated. And I wake up. I'm like, oh, obviously. <laughs> because obviously. you don't have the answers. I Right. I'm just I'm just like talking to myself and I don't realize it because I feel like they're autonomous. I'm like, God, why doesn't this physicist know anything? Doesn't know That's any wild. of the answers to the questions I have. <laughs> That's awesome. But not all imagined people are like that, right? Right. Like if you, you know, a, another thing about dream characters that's really interesting is that um, there are lucid dreamers. So a lucid dreamer is somebody or a lucid dream is when you know you're dreaming and you can um, you have a you can act in the dream with the knowledge that it is a dream. So it gives you some kind of freedom and you have some limited control over the environment that varies from person to person. But often the other dream characters are not under the lucid dreamers control. So it's not like a fantasy where you just like puppet people around. Mm, mm. And so they've actually done studies. This is so crazy. They've done studies where they have lucid dreamers go to sleep and ask their dream characters questions. So they found that they're better at certain kinds of math problems than other ones. They found that they're, uh, they can come up with things that seem to be more creative than the dreamer, like coming up with interesting metaphors and stuff. Um, and they're very wily. So, like, you, you, you ask a dream character, like, oh, uh, are you conscious? And they might say, well, of course I am. But, like, with you asking that question, it makes me wonder about you. So they're um, – That even... reminds me of two things. Siri, <laughs> when you ask Siri a question that <laughs> relates to her degree of, or degree of consciousness, and she's like – like, you'll ask her, are you alive? And she'll say something like – Something clever. Uh, yeah, something clever. But it also reminds me of dissociative identity disorder. Yes. Yeah. Right, so, that you have all these different personalities that ex coexist, and that they also have, to some degree, there's like awareness uh, that they're not meant to be aware. If that makes any sense, so I wonder if there's any relationship between these characters that we can construct in lucid dreaming and 
how that might relate to if somebody develops dissociative identity disorder. Right, yeah, I don't know about that. Wild. I don't know much about mm -hmm. that part of dissociative identity. For everybody, dissociative identity disorder is what is popularly known as split personality. Uh, and one thing I can say about it is that everything about it, including its very existence, is pretty controversial in scientific psychology. <laughs> True, fair. It's so, doubted. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, let's imagine like somebody's fa you're fantasizing about somebody giving you a compliment. Yeah, so in fantasy, in contrast to dreams, in fantasy, usually the characters are within your control. So if you are – like, and I say fantasy, I just mean like musing or whatever. So if you like fantasize about winning an award or going on a date with somebody famous or whatever, you know, it's not like you're often surprised by what the characters in the fantasy will do. Um, so, you know, you might – fantasize about meeting somebody that you really admire, like a rock star or something like that. And you might imagine how that interaction would go down, but it's not like that rock star would um, do things that like totally shock you. Now, you might like want the rock star to do something, and then your own notions of what's realistic might get in the way of that, but that's a little bit different, all right? It's not that you're just like watching them act uh, uh, out of your conscious control or whatever. So it is the case that sometimes imaginary people are feel it feels autonomous and sometimes they don't. And do we know why? Like what is the So what's no, driving we don't, that? we don't really know why. So there um there's a theory that I'm well, I came up with it independently, but uh it was also uh invented by a uh prominent um imaginary friends, imaginary companions researcher, um Taylor, Marjorie Taylor. And uh, it is that it's it's basically about learning and automatization. So uh, let's talk a little bit about automatization and um, what that means. So when you do something for the first time, some physical activity, like you're trying to sew or something like that or ride a bike, you're very clumsy and you and and you don't have the mental capacity to pay attention to everything at once. So those the listeners who can drive, if you think back to when you first started trying to drive, it just seemed to be way too much that any person could possibly pay attention to, like all the signs and the and the streetlights and the other cars and pedestrians and and you've got a wheel and a and a, maybe a stick shift and a clutch and a brake and a and then you got to get the right song on the radio. So there's just too many <laughs> things to concentrate on. But after a while, you get you, your mind. One of the wonderful things about your mind is that it develops uh, well-worn pathways and it transfers that skill to uh, unconscious automatized thought so that you can think about other things while your, let's say your unconscious mind is engaging in those activities. So that's automatization and it takes time. So tying your shoes, you could probably do without thinking, but uh, that that's because you've practiced it over and over again. So the theory is that, um, and it's not a perfect theory, but the theory is that uh, this is what happens with imagined characters. If you imagine them over and over again and you think about how they are going to react, eventually they're going to become autonomous. So what you're saying to me is that, for example, when fiction authors are have like a, characters in their book, sometimes they feel like they don't have control of these characters. Yeah. So this is a very, very widespread and fascinating thing. And if you don't write fiction, you might never have heard of it. But many authors and uh, they report that their main characters become autonomous, Wild. which means that after uh, a certain amount of time, their characters start doing whatever they want. And this is the author's experience. Of course, the author is controlling it 
some part of their mind is controlling, but they have the illusion of independent agency. And so the characters sometimes don't do what they're told. So you want the plot to go a certain way, and the character just refuses to behave. Um, and you can write down that the character does this or that, but your imagination can't really handle it because the character in your imagination wow. is doing something totally different, right? And wow. so they're very um, – th- so they've done studies of this, and uh, – some studies show that it's about 30,000 words, which is maybe 100 pages, right, in a, in a typical, like, novel or something like that. And after about 30,000 words, um, the, main char- the main characters start to become autonomous. So there's some really interesting uh, stats about this. So they did a survey of 50 writers. 92% of them had some characters who are autonomous. Um, and then 42% of writers can engage in dialogue with them. Right, as though they're like dream characters. So, famously, Alex Alice Walker, who wrote uh, *The Color Purple*, she had two main characters in this novel, and they would have long conversations with her. They would give her advice about her life. They would talk about the plot. They would talk about what's happening. And her novel is partially a result of what these characters, who felt completely independent, uh, told her that they wanted to do or would do. And Philip Pullman, if you heard of *The Golden Compass*, right, uh, which is a series of books, his *Dark Materials*. Um, so this is a main character. I forget her name, but she was played by um, an actress whose name I also can't remember. <laughs> that character was supposed to like, go in a cave or something, and she just wouldn't do it. And he had to negotiate with her, like give give the character. She says, "All right, I'll, I'll do something that I know you want later in the book if you will go into this cave because I need you to go in there for this plot." So, um, yeah, th- this really happens. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> do you think this is something that more experienced writers? Would experience? Uh, do you think more experienced writers is it more common? Would more fall prey to writers? this? Yeah, um, is it due to practice? Is it you know? I don't know if that research has been done. Huh. And is it true for all the characters? It is not. It is not. So, and this is part of why I think that it might be a matter of automatization. So, usually people talk about, oh, your characters are autonomous, but really, it's only the main characters. Okay. Hmm. Uh, it, so, if you've got a character who like goes through a toll booth and pays a toll with a, you know, it's not like the toll booth person is going to like break out into song. Like it's only the main characters, right? So you, and and the thing is that you don't get as much experience thinking about these other characters. So they remain in conscious control. So you're a writer. Has this ever happened to you? No, I really wish it would. I think it would be a really amazing experience. Um, and it certainly doesn't happen to anybody. And I've written uh, several novels, none of them published. And uh, I've had nothing close to this ever happening to me. So, <laughs> hmm. Like, I do, I do wonder if it is, if it does happen to everybody, you know, for certain people who have a more, quote unquote, active imagination. I don't even know what that means in terms of defining that. I mean, if it were that simple, I think I would have them because I'm constantly, constantly generating like worlds and stories and all kinds of stuff. Sure, sure, sure. You know, it just doesn't happen. But I was at a a panel and uh, uh, at a writer's conference and there were like six people and mm, maybe four out of the six had claimed to have autonomous characters and one said, no, I'm in complete control of my characters. And this person had written many, many novels. Hmm. So, you know, we don't really know what underlying brain or mind characteristics would predict this. So, yeah, we still don't know. So if imaginary friends often feel autonomous, are they learned? So imaginary friends, uh, so you might have, like, um, experienced this as a kid and the listeners or whatever. Did you have one, Kim? Did you have any imaginary friends? I didn't, but my... uh, 
my oldest daughter, Robin, did. She had an imaginary friend named Diga um, that she had when she was around three. And she would talk about Diga as a playmate. And um, sometimes she would project her emotions onto Diga, I noticed. So if she didn't want to do something, it was because Diga didn't want to do it. Um, I found it, yeah, I was was kind of fascinated because I'd heard about imaginary friends. I never had one, nor did my sister. Uh, so when it happened with Rob, I was like, oh, this is, you know, it's commonplace. Uh, and this is what's happening. And then my youngest, Zoe, never did. So How long did Diga last? Is she still there? No, uh, maybe a year or two, tops, not yeah. very long. So uh, what, what, one thing you said about, like, trans, the emotions is thought that one of the roles that imaginary companions, they're called imaginary companions in science. One of the roles that they have is to allow the child to express emotions in a way that's difficult directly. So, mm. like... You want to do something that's frightening, like go in the water or something like that. They might say Diga's afraid to go in the water, and it's mm-hmm. their way of trying to control. Con- the well, yeah, and have a little safe face or something about it. You know, yeah. they don't want to look scared, but they also don't want to do it. Um, anyway, so these imaginary friends are very common. They're, they're harmless. In fact, they probably help when they're when they're around. Um, but they are uh, are they learned, right? So this is this is tough. Um, because <laughs> the scientists only deem a imagined person an imaginary companion if it's been around for more than three months. Hmm. Because kids create imaginary com- imaginary characters yeah. constantly in pretend play. In play, but yeah. My it, kids do that all the time. So they, yeah. So so they're not going to – scientists don't consider it an imaginary companion until it's been there a while, which makes some kind of sense. But the problem is then – there's been no tracking of the development of a run-of-the-mill imaginary character into an imaginary companion that would qualify for the scientist, right? So there actually have not been studies about the progression of imaginary companions uh, and the uh, when they become autonomous. So we don't really know. But given that they have to have been around for three months, that is probably a significant amount of time that the kids could be practicing thinking about the imaginary companion. And uh, did Diga ever like do anything that uh, your daughter didn't like? Yeah. Right. So so this is that's evidence that it's not in control. If it was just fantasy in the sense of like fantasizing being thinking about things that are happy and you like, then we wouldn't get this. But there are lots of stories of uh, like the tr- family plans a trip to the zoo and they've been planning it for weeks. And then the, the, that morning, the, the kid is inconsolable because Diga or whatever can't go, made other plans and has a terrible time the entire day. And the parents are like, my God, it's your, it's your imaginary companion. Just make it so they didn't have yeah, plans. Yeah, but that's yeah. not the way it is. That's autonomous. And sometimes the kids will fight with them and, and be on the outs with them. And this is all very suggestive that it, the, ch- the children experience the imaginary companion as uh, autonomous. So what's a tulpamancer? Okay. Uh, this is crazy. So if you've been falling asleep, now's the time to wake up, audience. A tulpa. <laughs> have you heard of this, game at all? Tulpas? No. Oh, my God. This is no. so great. This is so great. So what happens is it is a forced benign hallucination. And it's kind of like an imaginary companion. So adults do this. They want company, which is one of the reasons that imaginary companions exist for kids. And what you do is you force one, which means that you imagine an imaginary companion intensely over the course of like uh, several months, many, many hours, and eventually they seem to become autonomous, and it's called a tulpa. 
And so in the jargon of this subculture, the people who create them are called tulpamancers, which is, makes them sound like they're magical or whatever. Uh, and some people have several. Um, and, uh, and there are guidebooks about how to get one. And so then you can have conversations with them. Once they're autonomous, they're just sort of always around. And you can ask them advice. You can chat with them. You're, you're kind of never lonely because you've always got an imagined autonomous being that you can just like have who's always around. How would this be distinguishable from somebody who has a mental health disorder like schizophrenia or? Well, you can't get schizophrenia by just working at it. <laughs> no, I know. But like I can only um, imagine if like somebody starts describing this to another person. The, the, well, okay. That, so that might lay, be alarming. I mean, Yes, because people don't really understand schizophrenia. I mean, lay people don't understand yeah. schizophrenia, but schizophrenic hallucinations tend to be very uh, frightening and and mean, uh, mm. and are all, almost always oh, not almost always, but very very often purely auditory. So, um, and uh, and they and they certainly don't come from any. Um, they're not due to any practice. Like nobody mm. wills these things into into existence, right? So, are topomancers? Is there any like? Is this does this, this appear as a trope in um, movies or? No, no, no. But, no, almost nobody knows about it, and there've only been like four papers written about it. How many it's people like on an average internet... would have mm. this, or oh, would God. be topomancers? None. There's like a there's like an internet group of of you know I don't know maybe a thousand. But, but statistically, like, this is like a thing that was created, like a way to imagine things that become autonomous that it's not like is cross-cultural. It's just something that, like, people came up with. So they create these tulpas and, and you know, and then you can't get rid of them. Like, it's hard to get rid of them. So people describe trying to remove a tulpa, like trying to s learn not to be able to play the piano, which also suggests – I mean, the, that kind of language suggests automatization too, is that, like, once the tulpa is around, since it's no longer in your control – um, getting rid of one is actually uh, it takes some work as well. This sounds like science fiction. It's, yeah, like I feel. Are like you skeptical I'm, that these that this is real? No, I'm not skeptical. I just. Oh. Yeah, I, I guess science fiction indicates some degree of skepticism, but it's it. Like I just have a, an image of of this being some kind of future. I don't know, like almost like like you you know you. You're an expert in AI. Could we create these digitally and have some kind of digital representation of these tulpas? Well, well, I mean, you mean of a tulpa that already exists? Yeah, like so. Let's say I've created a tulpa. Okay. I mean, we're getting like. I know she, she's not going to do it, but just field. if you ever did. But let's say I create a tulpa. Could we develop, you know, in the future, this sounds, this is mm -hmm. what the science fiction part of me is going, is like developing some kind of technology to create that brainwave activity and transfer it into a digital signal to recreate that imagined t person into something that exists in a digital space. So in a, in a, in a broader sense, what you're asking is the same question as like, can we read people's dreams and turn them into movies. Yes, I, or exactly. Like any yes. mental image, can you turn yeah. it into a picture? Mm -hmm. And if, if you're asking about the state of the art, um, right now that 
it, we have preliminary progress on trying to recreate visual images. So what we have been able to do is train machine learning systems to be able to um, uh, they can tell what image you are looking at with your brain signal of like 20 images. So if you're looking at one of 20 images, we can look at someone's – we can image their brain and tell which one of them they're looking at. And I think we've done that with imagery too, meaning if they imagine one of the 20 pictures, we can tell which one they're looking at. But uh, I don't think uh, – you know, I, I think there might be one paper that is just trying – like whatever you imagine, it makes some rough idea of it. But that um, – I think that it, it's in principle possible, but it, it might be. It might. It'll not be, be an episode of Black Mirror someday. It might, well, it might not be very good. In, it, it might be impossible to make it very good if there's a lot of idiosyncrasy in each person's brain. So, if every person's oh, I see. If or every person's way that they imagine an apple is the same is different from or yeah, yeah. if it's the same as everybody else's, then we it's would just easy. have to learn it once. Yeah. And then we could read everybody's brain, but otherwise it would take probably intense training with each individual person so that how does their brain do it? But because that part of the visual system is relatively – that is more similar than like the cortex, like the V1 and our – that's more – the visual areas are more consistent across individuals than than like the structure of the, the cortex at a fine grain level. Um, it's more likely – it's more likely that we'd be able to do that than say to read someone's thoughts. Mm. Like if someone's mm -hmm. thinking thinking sure. about how they you know want to yeah. go to the park next week, uh, an abstract thought like that, which is probably cortical, would be represented probably completely differently in everyone's brain in a way that imagining a big black dot would would not, you know. Wow. So <laughs> sorry, I took us a feel. Let's let's go back to like when we're dreaming. Right. So. When you're dreaming about uh, different characters, even mm -hmm. or yeah, even ones you've never seen before, is is this autonomous? Yeah, they're all yeah, they are autonomous, and this is interesting, right? So if it takes a lot of learning, my theory is that if it takes a lot of learning to automatize beings in your mind uh, before they become autonomous, then why is it that all of our dream characters are autonomous, even ones we've never thought about before? So my answer to that, my suggested answer to that, is that. They are either people you know very well, like you're dreaming about your mother or your spouse or something, or they are stock characters. And a stock character is like an, an archetype or a stereotype or something like that. So there might be like a dangerous man or a shopkeeper. And the word stock character is from uh, fiction where like, you know, uh, you might have like the rough cop and that might be like a stock character or something like that. Mm. But, you know, people have dreams of being chased by a dangerous man. So I can imagine that like a dangerous man is like a stock character. And and it's, they're not particularly deep, which means that they're not like rich characters with lots of personality and idiosyncrasies and surprising behaviors. They act like the, the stereotype, right? Mm. So stock characters are considered like kind of bad in fiction. If like you don't want your main character to be like a stock character, you want them to be... Uh, kind of rich, right? So that's what I think is going on. You're either dreaming about people you know pretty well, in which case you're using a complex automatized mental model of them, or they are extras, so to speak, stock characters. So when I think about my husband, right, and he appears in my dreams, I do know him very well, but sometimes his actions in my imagine do not, imagination do not feel autonomous. How do you explain that? Yeah, so that's a problem uh, with the theory, right? Because... Uh, my theory says that if you think about somebody enough, they'll become autonomous. But 
when I think about my wife or you think about your husband, they uh, those characters in our minds are not autonomous, right? So we are in control of them. So that is a problem for my theory. I don't know why that is. Like, why can I control what, you know, people I know really, really, really well and I've interacted with so much and I have mm. detailed mental models and I can answer tons of questions about them. Why is it that when I imagine them, I'm in control of them? Shouldn't that be auto automatized? But it appears mm -hmm. not. So to me, that's like a problem with the theory. Yeah, you know, sometimes in my dreams he has an affair. <laughs> Scoundrel. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've brought up a number of novel ideas and novel thinking around autonomized characters. Have you published this idea? So uh, only in my new book, my imagination book, which is out now, um, but I'm also preparing a journal article about it. So we're going to mm. hopefully submit that in the next couple months. Yay. And then what about people's internal monologues? So that's the other thing that, um, like you said, it's, it's kind of pinging around the internet is that... Yeah, did you hear uh, about this? Yeah, I have. I've seen people kind of... It's like, it's like when people... Um, equivalent to aphantasia, aphantasia uh -huh. right? Is that the right term for it? When people lack vivid imagery. Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually had a couple students that are aphantasic come to see me because I was like, I, this was like mind blowing that you can't, right. you have no so, visual. So in general, people's minds are blown when they find out that other people are different from them. Yeah. So <laughs> by the life. same token, like I was describing earlier, I have a very rich internal monologue. Um, and I do think a lot of it like my planfulness is is a part, I don't know if it's a part of that or well, do if you plan in words? Like I don't. Yes. Yes, I think. Yes. Right. So 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 okay, let me just briefly say what this whole thing is about. So yeah. some people have and I don't want to say voices in the head like schizophrenia, but they just no. they think in terms of words or they have thoughts going through their head that are that are in a particular language. Right? It might be English or whatever your natural language is. And it's just like thoughts that you have. So some people and, – and often this like internal monologue is kind of a jerk, right? They might be like, oh, you're, you'll never be good at this or they don't like you or something like that. Or sometimes it's just, just thinking about like, okay, I need to do this first. I need to pick yes, up the coffee. That's mine. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not like that. So for me hmm. – um, if I think about picking up the coffee, it is very abstract. It is not a sentence – it is not anything like that. It is just a thought that I have to pick up coffee. I actually have very little internal uh, monologue. Um, now, the extreme version, now I'm not extreme. I can imagine voices. So like if I want to, I can imagine the sound of like um, one of my favorite comedians telling a joke and what prosody they had and what cadence then how, you know, the timing and, and I can imitate people's voices to some extent. So I'm able to do that. There are some people who can't even do that. Like they can't even imagine with an act of will the set, like like the sort of the image of a sound of a voice in their head, and they have to like say it out loud wow. to make it work. Right. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of variants with that kind of thing. Are people more likely to have like a thought disorder related to that, like dep even depression or anxiety, because that is indicative. Often people who have depression or anxiety will say that they have these intrusive thoughts that are often um, negative, right? Like you're stupid, nobody likes you. So I would expect so, but I don't really know. And I also don't mm -hmm. know if those thoughts are verbal, if they're, if they're language-based, mm -hmm. right? So you can have a thought that you are a loser without a sentence in your head that says you are or I am a loser. Do you see the difference? This, yes, I, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> mind-boggling to me because I do have a very active verbal, like 
everything's in words in my head. And even wow. when I when I meet somebody, I have to have them spell out their name so I can imagine their name in my head. And in, that's really in terms of letters, in terms of writing. Yeah. Oh, so that's like a further step, right? So writing is even separate from from yeah, the verbal, right? Yeah, because I see the words in my head. Right. So there's many layers to this. So there's a thought like I would like let's say I would like to have some I would like to have a hot chocolate. You can have a thought, many people can have a thought like that that is uh nonverbal in that it is just like just it's just a desire to have coffee. And then you can have the sentence I would like some coffee or you would like some coffee depending on whether you're the subject of the, you know, whether yeah. you talk to yourself, how you talk to yourself depends on whether it's I or you. Um, and then you can go for even further that it is someone's actual voice. Like when you have a thought in your head, Kim, that like yeah. I want some coffee. Do you, see, do you think I want or you want some coffee? Uh, it, it's me. It's my voice. No, I know. But, do, but does the voice say I or me or you? Oh, I. Okay. So I want some coffee. Is it in a particular voice that you could recognize? Is it your voice? Is it a male voice, a female voice? Does it have a volume? Does it have? I don't hear it. Okay, so that's the thir- that's the thing, right? So some people, it's more of a uh, an auditory um, imagery that they actually could tell you the accent that whether it's a male or female, how loud, um, and so so they vary. So there's all different ways that this can happen. Listeners, you can't see my face, but my jaw is on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I want to mention, this is just like a, is you know how um, I'm sure Jim, like whenever you teach. Um, like sensory processes, if you've ever done that. We always talk about how it's very hard to um, imagine a smell or a taste. Yes. Yeah, I can. You, oh, okay. So what you so, talk about is imagery. So like, let, I'll take me for example. I know what cinnamon smells like, but I cannot image it in the same way that I can image a like an apple sitting in front of me. So w- w- I can think about the, the taste of cinnamon or the smell of cinnamon, but it's not as much like actually smelling cinnamon as my visual imagery is like seeing something in the real world. Yeah. But you've got vis- you've got vivid olfactory yeah, very, imagery. Ver- vivid olfactory gustatory, which is taste. Like I mm-hmm. can I can very much imagine smells and tastes like that they're it's not just about knowing the difference between cinnamon and vanilla. Like I right. can actually mm-hmm. like when I think about cinnamon I can, yeah, it's very like I, I, that's something that I just stumbled on, and in part it happened when I went to a perfume counter at Sephora, and the guy behind the counter happened to be very knowledgeable about olf- scents, and we got into this very erudite conversation about perfumes, and I realized how much more I could I could engage with that odor because I had that right. I don't know it was it it it, it, it added to my perception of, of yeah. the smells. And, yeah. and, and, prob- and the reason why is because your memory, okay, let's just say my memory of what cinnamon smells like. Someone might ask me, how woody is that scent? Or how alcoholic is the scent of cinnamon? Mm. And if I haven't thought about it already, I can't re-experience the scent to re-perceive it. Mm. Somebody mm-hmm. with imagery can't do that. So mm-hmm. one of the classic thoughts of what imagery is for is reperception. And now the evidence for this has been spotty, but the idea is like if you ask somebody, for example, what is the shape made by the negative space in a letter, capital letter A, uh, most people have never thought about that before. Uh, so they have to create an image in their head to see a triangle mm-hmm. in their mind's eye. People who are aphantasic can't do that. Mm. They can't answer that question. 
unless mm. they use like motor imagery. They'll suddenly draw letter A on their leg or something with their finger, and then they'll re- they'll have drawn a, a triangle, and they will recognize the triangle that way. So this reperception—that's pr- part of why. That's probably that's what one of the purported uses of imagery is is so that you can reanalyze it and reperceive it. So when I think about what the smell of cinnamon is like, I can't really break it down and analyze it without actually smelling a real real mm. cinnamon scent in front of me. This has been fascinating. <laughs> well, everybody, enjoy your imagined characters. And uh, if you're interested in tulpas or lucid dreaming, there are instructions online, and most of them have very little scientific evidence. But good luck! This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible in part by our listeners, who we hope are not imaginary. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.